Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. So I wanted to look at this passage about the triumphal entry, I guess we'd often call it. I'm afraid I'm not going to go back and explain the parable beforehand. I am going to go the other direction from what we've read and go into chapter 20 and see what happens when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Uh, So if you've got your Bible there, it'd be great to have it open to uh, Luke 19 and 20. And uh, there's an outline handed out, but we also can follow that on the slides. Uh, Let's pray as we come to hear God's Word. Father, we thank you for your Word. Thank you, Lord, that you uh, reveal yourself to us, but especially that you point us to Jesus. You show us who He is and call us to follow Him and put our trust in Him. And we pray that you'll do that for us again this evening, especially as we prepare to celebrate Easter. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine the wind whistling uh, down the street, blowing the tumbleweeds. Uh, in the distance, the horses whinny, and, uh, the, but the street is quiet. The, every door along it is, is locked, and the windows are shut, although the, some of the curtains are twitching a bit with curiosity. Uh, At the foot of the steps of the saloon, there's the sheriff with his hand to the holster and you can hear the jangle of spurs as someone else comes around the corner and everyone holds their breath. I'll get you to put up the... There's a slide with an image there. Uh, In a moment, the guns will crack and the bullets will fly and somebody will lie dead in a pool of blood. Uh, It's a showdown, Uh, it's a classic kind of movie scene, I guess not in our movies so much, but I'm sure you've uh, seen enough westerns to recognise it. And when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, it's that kind of scene, there's a showdown coming and I want to show you uh, what this showdown looks like and what happens in it uh, as we pick up Luke's story of the triumphal entry. Uh, It's really key that Jesus arrives at Jerusalem uh, because Jerusalem is so big in the story of the Old Testament. A couple of slides on. I can just go through, there's one on some. Can we just move on a couple of slides? And the next one as well. Great. Some words from Psalm 48. Uh, Listen to this. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. That's Jerusalem described in the Old Testament. God's own city uh, where he dwells in the temple where the people of Israel come to worship him. Uh, It's also the city of David. David had captured it 
Uh, and so it's the palace of the king. It tells Israel that they're in God's land, ruled by God's king, living in God's presence, that they're secure in the city. Uh, and so this is the place that they long for. Um, when Israel disobey God, Jerusalem is attacked. Part of the pain of the exile is that Jerusalem is in ruins. Uh, so if we just move to the next slide, you probably know something about Psalm 137, written in the exile. Uh, by the rivers of Babylon we sit and weep when we remember Zion, the mountain with the temple in Jerusalem. They're going to say, how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. If I do not keep, do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And so a key question throughout the Bible is what will happen to Jerusalem? After the exile, Jerusalem was rebuilt, uh, but they always hoped it would be bigger and better and more glorious. And one day it would be the joy of the whole earth. And Israel hoped that because there were promises in the Old Testament that is exactly what God would do. We could find them in all sorts of places, but uh, we just read about them in Zechariah. Uh, so perhaps not a book of the Bible that you read very often, uh, the book of Zechariah. But the second half of that book, from chapter 9 through to chapter 14, is full of promises about the restoration of Jerusalem. Uh, earlier than the section we read, if you've, if, you can, if you've got your Bible there and you can find Zechariah, uh, it's the second last book in the Old Testament. So it's not too hard to find. Uh, in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, we've, we hear this. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So there's a promise of a king, a new king, David, uh, humble, riding on a donkey, but victorious, uh, coming to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom, to bring peace and to rule the world. And, and so through the rest of Zechariah, there's repeated promises of the restoration of Jerusalem, uh, the passage we did just read in chapter 14 uh, tells of a time when the Lord himself will come and stand on the Mount of Olives just outside Jerusalem and fight for them. Uh, so if you just put up the next slide, uh, there should be a picture of... Nope, next one again. That's it. Uh, so here's the Mount of Olives, uh, just to give you a picture of what they're talking about. Obviously, modern photo, but the Mount of Olives uh, looks across onto Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, so there's a valley in between, up onto the side of the uh, Mount Zion, uh, where the, that golden uh, roof is, that's the, the uh, mosque that's on uh, the Temple Mount. And so the promise in Zechariah is that the Lord will fight against the enemies of Israel from the Mount of Olives, even dividing the Mount of Olives, um, on this great day of the Lord, when there won't be day or night. And when that happens, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. Uh, 
Zechariah says. Living water will flow from Jerusalem. The wealth of the nations surrounding will be collected in Jerusalem. Even the saviour, even the survivors of the nations around about will come and worship in Jerusalem and worship the King, the Almighty, the Lord Almighty. And everything and everyone in Jerusalem will be holy to the Lord. And so Zechariah promises that Jerusalem will be restored uh, when the king comes in, when the Lord himself fights from the Mount of Olives. And if we then turn to the, Old, to the New Testament in the book of Luke, where we're focusing this evening, uh, again, throughout Luke, there's been this expectation that Jerusalem will be restored. Another Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, had prophesied when John was born uh, that Israel would be restored with a new king from David. And uh, When Jesus is born, remember his parents take him to the temple and uh, he met there with, by Anna, the prophetess, and we're told she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And in chapter 9, uh, Jesus begins to journey towards Jerusalem. And it's very clear that everyone's expecting you know, something great to happen as he travels. Uh, so if we just put up the next slide. Uh, so chapter 9 to 19 of the book of Luke really traces this journey of Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. And we're told several times Jesus is on his right way to Jerusalem and expectations are building. In chapter 19, verse 11, uh, so in the chapter we're focusing on, just before that parable about the ten miners, we're told Jesus told that parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And, and you can see why. Here's the Messiah with all these promises of Jerusalem and he's been travelling to Jerusalem and he's, already, he's almost there. Of course you'd expect that the kingdom of God was about to appear. And so as Jesus travels into Jerusalem, the expectations are at fever pitch. Next slide. Uh, this map helps you to understand what happens as he arrives. He arrives from the east and travels through the villages of Bethany and Bethphage uh, on the side of the Mount of Olives. And he sends two disciples ahead to uh, find a colt for him to ride. And, and he's being a prophet there when he tells them, go and find the colt, and the colt's exactly where he said that the colt would, where it would be. But not just a prophet, because he tells the disciples, if anybody asks why you're taking it, say, the Lord needs it. And he's asked that, and that's his answer. And uh, we don't know where the, who the owners are, or how they knew, or if they knew Jesus. But that's sufficient for them. They recognise his, not only that he, no, he's not a prophet, but his authority uh, to claim the cult. And so like some of the Old Testament kings, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, but it, it echoes Zechariah 9. Here is the king riding in on the cult of a donkey. And it triggers joy and praise from the disciples who are with him. Uh, at this point, Jesus is not just travelling with the twelve. There's a whole crowd of disciples with him, and it might have grown as he travelled, walked through those 
those villages nearby, and they spread their cloaks out on the road, and they praise God for all the miracles they've seen, says Luke. But these are not people who just are interested in the miracles. They're very focused on Jesus. And they use words from Psalm 118, a psalm that was a coronation psalm about the king of uh, Israel being appointed. Uh, the, song it's, uh, the psalm itself talks about opening the gates, presumably the gates of the city, and acclaiming the king as God's saviour, and the crowd shouting and celebrating. And the crowds now take up those words and say the key line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, one of the commentators on this passage says that the mixture of that Zechariah prophecy about the king coming and the connection with the Mount of Olives and Psalm 118 would be explosive. Uh, it's hard to, you know, hard to come up with quite the same comparison or a good comparison for our... But you know, we, the election's been called today. But if um, tomorrow uh, Anthony Albanese got in the prime ministerial car and went to the parliament house and got out and held a, 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 a prime ministerial press conference and announced what the government's policies would be, you know, it'd be a, a revolution. Uh, I'm sure he's not going to do that. But if he did something like that, uh, it would be claiming that he was already prime minister. And that's really what Jesus is doing. He, as you watch what's happening, you have to think, this is the king and the Lord coming to Jerusalem. Uh, and we might think that Jesus would be embarrassed about the disciples carrying on about him, but not at all. The, the Pharisees say to him, Tell them to be quiet. And he says, look, if they don't shout, then the very stones will call out. It, it's a wonderful scene of recognition and celebration. Jesus' identity is out in the open. But then suddenly the tone changes. And instead of cheers and song, Jesus looks at the city and he weeps. Next slide up, there's a picture there. Because the Saviour and the Lord arrives to redeem Jerusalem and the city isn't ready. And Jesus longs for it to be different. He says, uh, it, it, weeping over Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And of course, in the Bible, the, the, the word peace doesn't just mean kind of things being quiet and still. It means life and blessing and restoration, that, that Hebrew word shalom. Jesus has come to restore Jerusalem, to establish it as the city of God, but Jerusalem won't recognize him. If only you knew what would bring you peace. Uh, we've seen that already in the Pharisees just a moment ago, telling the disciples to be quiet. Uh, but in fact, Jesus is exactly who the disciples say he is. And so we'll find that for the people of Jerusalem, their eyes are closed. They can't see the reality of who is in front of them. And so it's that double effect that you often see in the Bible of spiritual blindness, that people refusing to see, to recognize God and his ways, then find that they're also blinded and they're not even able to see God 
and his ways. It's the awful dynamic of spiritual blindness that people who won't accept Jesus therefore can't see who he is. Jesus' arrival could have been the greatest day in the history of Jerusalem. At the end of verse 44, Jesus says, you cannot recognize the time or you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He had arrived to redeem, but they reject him. And so there's a terrible tragedy here as the people of Jerusalem miss the salvation that was right there for them. Next slide. You might know the story of Burke and Wills, set off to cross Australia from north to south. Uh, Actually, as they left, had an indigenous tracker with them, but they decided they'd leave him behind in Menindee and keep travelling north. And uh, next slide, they generally ignored and despised the uh, Aboriginal people that they encountered in their journey. They reached Cooper's Creek and they left one of their party, William Bray, behind with supplies. They travelled north and made it to the Gulf of Carpentaria, or at least to the, um, to the, the swamps at the edge of it. Uh, and they told William Bray to wait for 13 weeks till they returned and they'd pick up their supplies and then travel back to Melbourne. Um, but the journey back took them longer. They uh, were exhausted and, and, and hungry. And Bray waited 18 weeks. And on the morning of the 21st of April, 1861... He buried the supplies in the dig tree. Next slide. Um, And uh, put the supplies under there and he left. And that evening, Burke and Wills arrived. Uh, Now, if they or Bray had befriended the Aboriginal people uh, around about, they probably would have known that they were a lot closer to each other. Uh, But they didn't. Burke and Wills lived off those supplies for a while and the people of the Coop, of Cooper's Creek, the Yandawarra people, actually came and gave them fish and beans and bread made of nardu. But at one point, Burke got out his gun and shot over their heads and they naturally ran away. And so Burke and Wills, surrounded by bush tucker, with, with help available, but with low, no, no local knowledge, starved to death at Cooper's Creek. Uh, help was there, but they couldn't and wouldn't see it and accept it. And it's the same sort of tragedy in Jerusalem. Jesus has come to redeem the city, but they won't see it. And so Jesus weeps over them. He says, if only, if, if only you could see. Uh, that needs to be the way that we look at people who refuse Jesus. Uh, it has to trigger compassion and pity and tears. Uh, we should weep for them and pray for them. It's not a matter of being angry or, or disappointed or personally hurt. If we're like Jesus, it should move us to tears. That people, our family, friends, people around us hear about Jesus but won't listen to him. So the praise and the tears really set up the showdown in Jerusalem. Jesus arrives on his mission, but the people and the leaders reject him. 
Uh, he begins to, to, uh, to redeem Jerusalem. He, he comes in and clears the temple. He says, it, the temple should be somewhere where people pray, not where they do business. He begins to teach in the temple, uh, which is what should happen in the temple. People should hear the truth of God's word there. But what's their response? Uh, end, of verse, uh, end of chapter 19, every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests... And the teacher of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. At the beginning of chapter 20, they ask him about his authorization. What gives him any authority to do this? Of course, it's not a neutral question. They're not just, you know, this is, a, well, we're just interested to know how come you can do this. They're challenging him. You don't have the right to do it. Uh, he asks them in response about who gave John the Baptist his authority that they can't answer because they're caught between popular opinion who, loved jo who, who, who uh, followed John the Baptist and recognised him as a prophet, and so they answer nothing. And so Jesus won't answer them. And through the rest of chapter 20, uh, Jesus says two important things about who he is and what's going on as he as he's there in Jerusalem. And I just want to focus on those two things. First of all, he tells the parable of the tenants, it's sometimes called, but it's probably better the parable of the rejected son. He tells a story about a vineyard, uh, and a vineyard or a vine is a common image for Israel. And the owner of this vineyard leases it out to tenants, and then, after time, sends his servants to go and collect the, the harvest from the tenants. Uh, but they reject his servants, they kick them out, they won't pay. So finally, the man sends his own son. Surely, he says, the tenants will listen to him. But no, they kill him, hoping to take the, the vineyard for themselves. And Jesus says, what is the owner going to do? Well, he's going to come and kill those tenants and take the vineyard and give it to other people. And when Jesus tells that story, the crowd, of Jerusalem, the crowd in Jerusalem are shocked. How could that possibly be? You know, they understand what the point is. Jerusalem and Israel are the vineyard. The tenants are Israel or, the, or the, her leaders. They've rejected God. They've killed his servants, the prophets. God now sends his son asking for the harvest and what are they going to do? They're going to try to kill him. But the result will be their destruction. And in response to their shock, Jesus quotes words from Psalm 118. The same psalm as people had declared him king, he quotes these words. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Uh, the people who are meant to be building Israel have rejected the very stone that's meant to be the foundation of Israel. And he explains this further, quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, also about a stone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. For Israel, Jesus is going to become, instead of the foundation stone on which the kingdom is built, the stone of destruction, because they've refused to welcome him. Could God destroy Israel and give, his king, give, give the kingdom to others? Jesus is saying he could and he will if they reject his son. 
And then towards the end of the passage, Jesus asks them a question. Uh, The Jews, of course, believed that the Messiah would be the son of David. And so Jesus quotes to them Psalm 110, written by David, which says, The Lord, the Lord God, said to my Lord, the Messiah, and Jesus asks them, How can David, who is the father of the Messiah, call him Lord? Well, if you've recognised who Jesus is, you know the answer. Uh, Jesus is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. That's what the parable has said, that he's the son sent by the, by the owner of the vineyard. Uh, but notice that the words that Jesus quotes not only say the Messiah is his Lord, but it says that the Lord God has said to the Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's the same idea again. Those who are opposed to Jesus are going to be defeated. They reject Jesus, but God has already chosen him. So the parable of the rejected son sets up Jesus' death. Within a week, they'll kill him. But Psalm 110 looks forward to his resurrection and ascension. He will be raised and seated at the right hand of the Father as the heavenly Lord. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, the people were confronted with this question, who is Jesus? Is he the true king coming to the city? Is he God visiting his people to fight for them? Is he the son who's come to collect the harvest? Is he the Messiah who will soon rule at the Father's right hand? That's the dividing question. And the disciples who followed Jesus were right. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds in Jerusalem and especially the leaders of Jerusalem rejected him. The result was the execution on Good Friday, but also the resurrection on Easter Day, when Jesus was revealed and appointed as Lord. And ultimately the result would also be the destruction of Jerusalem. But the key question then and now is, is Jesus Son of God, Lord and king. That's always the dividing question. As you drive west over the Blue Mountains, uh, out to Bathurst, there's a point round about Mount Lambie when you cross the watershed. Uh, so at that point, the, the rain that lands on the east uh, runs down into Cox's River and then into the Nepean River and out to the Pacific. The rain that falls on the west runs down into the Macquarie River and then out to the Darling and then down the Murray and out to the Southern Ocean. And so it may seem like a very fine line, but it's actually a total division of direction which way you head. Uh, The question about Jesus is like that. Do you recognise him for who he is? If you reject him, you face destruction. Uh, But if you welcome him as Lord, as the crowd of disciples did, uh, you find him as your saviour. Let's pray. 
Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to Jerusalem, uh, the promised King, that you came ready to die and to rise again. But Father, we, we weep, uh, we weep to think of those who should have seen but didn't, who could have seen but wouldn't. Uh, we, we weep for those we think of now as well, who should and could know of Jesus but don't. And we pray for your mercy on them. And we pray for your mercy on us. Help us to recognize him for who he is. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.